Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano, calling in remotely from Charlottesville. How are things in Charlottesville, Frank? They are great, David, although I had a uh, bit of trouble earlier in the week traveling from London to Charlottesville. Who could have guessed that making a connection in Chicago in January would be a problem? <laughs> <laughs> I never Who would have anticipated that? So I, it took me about two days to get here, but I'm, I'm pleased to be back. Um, and actually, bad weather may function as, as a theme in, in this episode, because part of our, our topic today is the, the Iowa caucuses and the history of how parties like candidates and, and weather is going to factor into that. But uh, yeah, I, I can I just say, David, that uh, I met another 250er, if we're going to call them that another okay. another listener who listened to all 250 episodes uh, recently. Uh, Simon from London. Uh, I had a chat <laughs> with him and we appreciate him listening. And he said his favorite episodes are the ones where we talk about movies. So, okay, I, so the uh, ones we talk about the things we don't have any actual expertise in. Exactly. Um, okay. All right. So, but today we're going to talk about uh, the Iowa caucuses, which are tomorrow. Uh, if you're listening to this the day we record it, the day it gets posted, uh, or today, if you're listening to following day, or in the past, if you're listening to later on, um, the way the time works. Right. Um, but before we talk and talk about Iowa caucuses, there are some follow-ups from last week's episode I want to bring up. Okay. One is uh, the Supreme Court agreed to take the case about the 14th Amendment that we discussed. So that's going to be an ongoing case. But Donald Trump was asked about the Civil War subsequent to our episode about the Civil War and, and this, this election campaign. And he said quite distinctly that had he been around at the time, he could have negotiated some kind of peaceful solution that would have uh, avoided the Civil War. Which, as a, a Republican candidate for president saying that that he's better than Lincoln and these kinds of things, uh, was quite a remarkable statement to make. If only Lincoln had read The Art of the Deal, uh, you know, everything would have turned out differently. Um, you know, well, and as... Well, uh, so, David, although, uh, I mean, I don't want to... Well, I, we always digress, but... Uh, where are we in terms of the historiography? And more importantly, where are you? Was there a point at which a negotiated settlement could have avoided the Civil War? I mean, let's let's I don't think Donald Trump would have done a better job than Abraham Lincoln. Uh, yeah. But but let's but let's let's accept the premise of his statement. Well, so the historians who have thought about this question in, in recent years have basically concluded that had there been any kind of negotiated settlement, it would have been one that was done on the backs of enslaved people. Right. It would have required some kind of constitutional guarantee for slavery and for enslavement uh, that would have been um, morally wrong and, and, and in opposition to everything that the Republican Party was claiming that that was foundational to them in terms of stopping the spread of slavery. Um, you know, one of the questions people have often asked about compromise in the Civil War is there had been you know, a series of compromises about slavery going back to the Constitutional Convention, Missouri Compromise, 1850, whatever. Um, but all of those were done really at the expense of enslaved people. Um, you know, you ask about who wins and who loses in the compromise. In, in, in all of those cases, enslaved people lost. Um, and so, you know, I think, you know, thinking about what it means when Trump says, oh, I could have negotiated a, a peaceful resolution of this. 
the only way he could have possibly have done that would have been to say, look, oh, we'll just preserve slavery in the Constitution and make it, you know, involatile and allow enslavers to take their human property wherever it is they want to take them. Um, right. So that's my read on that particular issue. But given the given the human cost of the war itself, um, and again, I'm playing devil's advocate here. I want to make this clear. Sure, 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 sure. Given what yeah. you just laid, laid out. But let's suppose there is a compromise of 1860 that's a successor to the compromise of 1850. And you're right. Part of that would have been the perpetuation of slavery. Uh, and, and however, the abolitionists would have had more time to continue to do their work. And maybe there's a peaceful abolition of slavery in 1875. Or 1900. Or 1950, right? Like you, you, you yeah. don't know what the counterfactual falls apart. Of course, falls apart. Um, and and I guess it is you have to do sort of the moral calculus of, you know, the enslavement of of you know millions of people versus the death of three quarters of a million. And, and you know, I'm not smart enough to do that kind of of of, of math. Um, and predict what a, a peaceful solution would have looked like, because I, you know, enslavers in the United States seem very committed to, to to not willfully giving up their their rights to own other people. Sure, and I, well, I, and again, I don't like the kind of path I'm on. So, so, so <laughs> in another direction. Um, what was you know we we talked last week when we talked about Nikki Haley's answer to this and saying, mm. look. She, a stupid woman she you know she knew what she was doing and she was trying to send particular messages to to voters in, in different places frankly like in uh, Iowa yeah well yes we'll get there uh what message was Trump Trump isn't necessarily as strategic a thinker I mean he tends to just respond uh hmm. but was he was he trying to send a message with that answer or do you think it was generally self-aggrandizing just I could have avoided it I could have I think it. it's I think it's entirely the latter I don't think he was trying to do anything particular I mean I don't think he does strategic things I think he does things and they happen to work out for him um you know he had said something very similar if you remember seven or eight years ago about uh, Andrew Jackson if Andrew Jackson had been alive he would have been able to avoid a civil war which you know I don't think he knows enough about the civil war to really say much of anything of, of interest beyond the fact that he's a former president and leading Republican candidate. Okay, so one of the things, one of the other alleged gaffes that Nikki Haley made was that she said in New Hampshire when she was uh, visiting there last week after she made her statement about the Civil War, uh, she said of New Hampshire voters in the New Hampshire primary, they correct the mistakes made by Iowa. Um, and and so, so <laughs> yes, that's not that's not wrong, not very what's wrong with Iowa. Well, exactly. Well, uh, yeah, so so we're going to try to make sense of this Iowa caucus, which is happening tomorrow, because it's just, you know, the way in which American select presidents is weird and, and, you know, different than pretty much anywhere else in the world. And the ways in which American political parties select their candidates beyond that is also weird. And um, so I try to make sense of, of how we ended up with the system that, that the United States has, starting with the Iowa caucus, which is the first real part of this election process hold on let me jump in for a second here david um you know 
Britain's most recent prime ministers were selected by a very small number of voters, that is, yeah. paid up members of the Tory party in yeah. leadership challenges, which is not unlike what goes on. Uh, you, you by comparison with the, with with those that selection process, um, which gave us not only Rishi Sunak but also Liz Truss, um, mm. uh, one could argue that um, the the system of caucuses and primaries is at least more open and inclusive than that. So 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 it might be strange, yeah. and it's certainly sweet generous to the United States, but don't don't, don't dismiss it out of hand. Oh no no! I'm gonna. It's 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 a bad system. We've got the United States has got a. This system is bad. Like it doesn't. Um, it may have had you know virtues at various points in time, but it is not a great way of picking um, candidates for office. And I'm not saying the British one is any better, but it's it's not just like the the you know Tory party having their private little meeting about who's the candidate's going to be. It's like if they had. Uh, just the Tories on the Shetland Islands picking who the who the prime minister is going to be, you know, it, it's it's a weird subset of of the broader party um, having a, a very strange influence on the entire system. Um, so I think we need to figure out how we ended up with the, with the system we've got now. I think making sense of both what an Iowa caucus is only makes sense if we do it sort of historically. Um, so what's the end point for all these caucuses and primaries? Why do we have them in the first place? Well, officially why we have them, and actually this is an important aspect of this, mm. is they are selecting delegates who will attend. The, the caucuses and primaries are party contests that, that are intended, and they do uh, allocate delegates for the party conventions next summer to that will officially nominate the candidates for the two parties. There's no competition this year um, on the Democratic side or no meaningful competition. So the, mm. because Joe Biden is the incumbent, normally when an incumbent president runs, they are not challenged. So similarly, the, the Iowa caucuses didn't matter in 2020 for the Republicans uh, because, mm. although they did because Trump was, um, was running again, but, but anyway, um, but, but usually the incumbent party doesn't, have a meaningful contest but certainly the party that's out of power and or when there's no obvious candidate they they need a mechanism to elect delegates to go to the national conventions mm -hmm. the following summer to uh select the candidates and the right. these um the the all right let, let me let me make the let me make the pro case which is to say uh these were an alternative to selecting candidates in smoke-filled rooms uh, by party grandees, which used mm. to happen for much of the history of the United States down to about 50 or 60 years ago. Yeah. And uh, following the kind of reforms of first the progressive era, but really the 1960s. And, and this was these, the, the current modern system was an attempt to broaden and democratize with a small d the selection process and the two states that have always kind of, at least in the modern era, have gone first are Iowa with its caucuses and New Hampshire with its primary. There's a dispute. They've been competing and jockeying for decades about mm. who's actually first and all that. I mean, we can deal with that if you want, but it's kind of nonsensical. Both are non-representative states. This is where your um, slight disparagement of Orkney, uh, sorry, of Shetland was uh, in comparing Shetland to Iowa and New Hampshire. 
Um, and it seems a little unnecessary, David, but anyway, you can apologize. They're both people. beautiful places. They're just not necessarily representative of the broader policy. Um, um, and, and, and there is also, and I think, I think Iowa and New Hampshire tap this in important ways. There's a sort of vestigial Norman Rockwell democratic um, uh, sepia-toned imagined democratic past that I think these these again with a small d these contests uh, tap into so um, you know it's sort of these are these are places where you have to do retail politics you have to meet people in the diner you have to meet people you go and see farmers and all this kind of stuff and 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 so they're seen as as good starting points because of that but anyway but yeah I mean just thinking about how parties select candidates for president I, mean, I think there are there are, there are a couple of years that are really turning points in which the system changes. The first one, I think, is going to be 1831. Okay. I, I, I didn't know you were going to go there. All right. So okay. tell us about so the, the uh, Before 1831, basically the parties, in, and obviously parties and what parties mean in, in the period before 1831 is, is obviously very different than it is today. It was basically the members of Congress who picked who they were going to put forward as the presidential candidate. So, so when you're, you know, the Democratic Republicans or the Federalists or whoever, their their congressional leaders sort of got together and said, okay, we're going to put it together, put it forward Jefferson or whoever is their, their candidate. That system worked until there was a party that had no members of Congress, and that was the anti-Mason party. And they had the first political convention where they said, actually, since we don't have this system uh, with members of Congress, we're going to get delegates from all the states uh, and, and have a convention. And we'll decide our candidate there. And all the other parties then sort of said, hey, that's a pretty good idea. We'll do that, which is a more democratic way of selecting a candidate than having just your member of Congress just pick it. Right? And this is really the age of Jacksonian democracy, et cetera, et cetera. From that point until you get to about 1912, the party convention, the National Party Convention, is where all the action happens. Right, and that's where they 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 pick their candidates. We've talked about this before. That's why Abraham Lincoln gets picked and and what have you. Um, and you know, people who go to these conventions are party leaders from the states, and they all get together and they actually decide at the convention who the the nominee is going to be. 19 that that system exists until 1912 when you have the first primaries um but not all states have primaries in 1912 and so you've got this period from 1912 until 1968 in which some states have primaries but a bunch of them don't and the convention still really matters um and you see really really great example of this is actually 1912 and the republican uh race for president in which Teddy Roosevelt, who had been president, but then had not been president for four years, decides he wants to be president again, runs, wins most of the primaries. But William Howard Taft had control of all the delegates, basically, from the states that didn't have primaries. And so he ends up getting the Republican nomination and Roosevelt does the full loose party thing and, and hence what Joe Wilson wins. Um, but that's the first time you have primaries, but it's clear the primaries are not that important because you can still go to the convention and decide who the candidate's going to be based on the other states um, and the party bosses are really in charge. 
Um, and so from that point in 1968, there are primaries and caucuses like in Iowa, but they're not seen as being actually the things that decide who the candidate's going to be on their own. They're described by some historians as beauty contests. They're like ways of, of campaigning, but not necessarily ways of actually picking candidates. still done at convention. Chicago in 68, though, is what actually moves things to being uh, the system we've got now, which I think, is, as many listeners know, that 68 election was a strange one in which the sitting president decides after he doesn't do very well in a, in a primary to, to no longer run for re-election. The eventual candidate, um, Hubert Humphrey, didn't participate in any of the primaries. Um, and one of the things, they, the reasons why they thought they lost that election, Democrats thought they lost that election beyond the chaos of that election more broadly, was they felt that because their candidate didn't really have much buy-in from many of the leading constituencies of the Democratic Party, they wanted to make the system more democratic. And so I think one of the things you see every time there's a shift is the, the system becomes more democratic. And so the modern system we have now in starts in 1972, uh, where all the states have primaries or caucuses or something to pick their candidates or pick their delegates for the convention. So I think you got these sort of three or four different phases of how parties end up with, with um, their, their eventual nominee. But, but uh, David, the, the, the tone of your, I mean, that was an excellent summary, thank you, but, but the tone of your comments prior to it were, suggested that you don't like this system. Let me, let me make the case for the system briefly. Okay. Which is, you need a system, you need some kind of system. Hmm. This is more democratic than what came before, and it's more yes. democratic than what you get in parliamentary systems, frankly, where... You, you basically have the parliamentary party selecting a leader. Um, so the, the people do get to um, have a say in, in large, not in their millions eventually, once we get to mm. Super Tuesday and beyond. Uh, and one of the one of the best ways to vet potential presidential candidates is I, I don't think the retail politics stuff. I think that gets overblown. Mm. I'm not sure being able to talk to people in a diner in 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 Iowa necessarily, or New Hampshire uh, is the best qualification. However, running a large multi-state campaign and competition and raising money for it, those you know, the, the skills required to do that, and we've seen that this year with some people being found out, uh, mm. which we may talk about, uh, uh, it, it's, it's the best test, I think, for whether somebody can run something as complex as the United States government. Now, it, it pales in significance by, you know, by comparing the two, but it's often the biggest thing somebody has done mm. prior to becoming president. And I think it's a pretty good test. So do you, what would you say to that? I mean, I think it's an interesting. So let's talk about actually how the caucus works. I think some of our listeners know have heard of the caucuses, but don't actually know what it is because it is like an election. But it's not an election in the traditional sense. You don't go into a ballot box and, and cast them. In a caucus, and the Democratic and, and Republican caucuses have worked differently, right? So this is a, a situation that we'll be thinking about the primaries and the caucuses in the United States. You don't just have 51 different systems, including Washington, D.C. You've actually got more than 100 different systems because each state party 
runs their elections slightly differently. Caucuses and primaries are run in part by state governments, but also partially by the parties. And so their rules are weird. And so, in, in fact, in, in the 50 years that the Iowa caucus has gone on, the Democratic caucuses and the Republican caucuses don't actually work the same way. And this year, the Democrats aren't having their caucus, just the Republicans. So it's a little bit more straightforward. But you show up at a caucus site, which is a local, often a school or sometimes a church or sometimes somebody's house in, in more rural parts of the state. At a particular point in time in the evening, I think it's usually 7 p.m., you get checked in. You then hear speeches by representatives from the various candidates um, where they're trying to persuade you to support Trump or, or DeSantis or Haley or whoever. And then you have to decide, and, and the Republicans, that they just go ahead and vote. And you have they actually just do a piece of paper and voting. The Democrats had the system where you could try to persuade people to move from their candidate to your candidate if they didn't get that a certain percentage of the vote from their particular caucus site. And so the thing could go on for two or three hours before they actually had reached a conclusion about who had, had won the, the caucuses. Um so it's a much more involved process than simply going to the fire department and voting or, or whatever it is. Uh, that you do on on election day or voting absentee or voting by mail because you have to be there at somebody's house or at the school or at the caucus site for two hours at least. Um, turnout caucuses is very very low. It's you know like twenty percent of registered voters show up to a caucus site in Iowa. Twenty percent of registered voters in that party. In that party, right? So it's a very you know. Turnout in American elections isn't great. Turnout in primaries is lower than the general election, and turnout in caucuses are even lower than that. So it's a weird subsection of a particular party that ends up making these kinds of decisions. And it's kind of a discriminatory process. There are lots of people who can't go to caucuses. You know, if you are have small children, you can't bring your children to the caucuses. If you work in the evenings, if you don't have reliable transportation, if you don't want to go out in the snow in a blizzard. And the weather's going to be terrible tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. it's going to be like wind chill negative 40, right? Like it's life-threatening wind chill. But if you want to vote in the, the caucus, you got to go out and drive on the ice, risking your life to do it. Is that a good choice? Probably not. But, you know, like that's what, is that the cost for democracy? Hard to say. So it's not a system that that is particularly democratic in terms of giving people access to the, the the largest number of people as possible. It really does. It's a system that might make sense if only men are voting, but in a system in which you know you expect a much more diverse demographic to vote, you know. But in a in a, I mean the the origins of this go back to kind of. New England town meetings and then mm. and, and Iowa because of its unique small population historically and its geography used the caucus system in the 19th century when it was newly settled as a way of bringing people together to you know so so one can see the democratic origins of this that this mm. was this was a better system or a good system then and then it, it, it and and there's a sort of 
Frank Capra, Aaron Sorkin version of this, where, you know, you come together on a cold night and you're persuading your neighbors and what could be more, you know, what, what could be better than that? You're absolutely right, though, about the, the kind of limitations it imposes. I it's don't great think, for voting for William Henry Harrison. Yes, I don't think the... I don't, I, I don't think the caucus system is sustainable. I don't think it's defensible. I do think the primary system, I, I, I'm not sure. Well, I, I guess I'd ask you, this is the big question. I should probably wait, hold this to the end, but what would your alternative be? I think you should have, a, we, the United States should have a single day national primary. And when would it be? I'm. I, I would put it in the summer, honestly, I would not have it in January. Oh I would God. put it in. Oh, David, we would have endless. It would go on forever. The the stupid debates with thirty five candidates, you know, because yeah, nobody would drop out before that. Yeah, maybe. Um, I mean, the, the the question is, like, if you if you put it any earlier, like, are you extending the? I don't know. The American political calendar is too long already. Um, you know, and part of it is because everyone has to get psyched up for Iowa that happens in early January. Um, do you know why Iowa's first? I do not. Okay. There's a great story I found in the New York Times from 1988 that explains it because they interviewed okay. the people. So, 68 was a disaster for the Democrats. They, they decide in 1972 they're going to have, um, you know, a, a system with caucuses and primaries for, for all the states they're going to do it and they start off with the states that had already had some kind of thing set up and they go to Iowa and they say right um, when is your when is your caucus going to be and the Democratic Party in Iowa gets together and they look and they find out what they say the, the caucus is actually a multi-stage process people always only pay attention to the first part but after they have the caucus that's going to happen tomorrow they then have a, a county-wide caucus where they get the people who were like the elected from that individual caucus at the in this person's house they go to a county-wide meeting and then there is a second level that is a congressional district caucus and then there is the final one that happens at the state convention and it turns out in 1972, there was only one date that was available in the convention hall for the state convention for the Democrats. Ah. And that was um, uh, on May 20th. And so that's when the Democrats were having their, their that final stage. But it, there's, there's you know, these intermediate stages between the first caucus and when it act, they actually have the state party meeting. And they had, according to this New York Times article, a very slow mimeograph machine that they needed to print out all of the things for these different meetings. And they calculated, therefore, that they needed to have the caucus uh, based on this availability of the convention hall and the slow mimeograph machine on January 24th. And so it's an, it's an entirely an artifact of, of, of hotel reservations and copying speed in 1972 but then iowa realized actually we get a lot of attention because we are first and so they said look we're going to keep doing this even if we can get a different date for our state convention um, because candidates will come and spend time here but it's a it's an entirely historical accident so 
David, we were talking a little bit before we went on the air, before we started recording. Mm -hmm. uh, and I posited that the Iowa caucuses generally don't matter. If you look at the people who win them most of the time, they do not go on, on for on either side, but um, they they generally don't go on to become the nominees of their party. Sometimes they do, but but mm. more often than not, they do not. And you countered and said, no, 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 that's not true. They're, they they have been important. So so if, well, there's, a, there's a couple of times historically, which I think they've really mattered. Uh, and one is in 1976 when Jimmy Carter ran for president. Um, you know, he was a, um, a a relatively unknown Georgia governor, uh, at least unknown on a nationwide scale. And he went and did that. He was really one of the first to do this sort of grassroots campaigning in, in Iowa, going to various counties and going to county fairs and going to diners and all those other kinds of nonsense we've gotten used to over the past 15 years. And he won the caucus in uh, nineteen seventy six, and eventually, obviously, won the, the nomination in the presidency, and and that was really a springboard for him uh, to to that, um, in part because you know people in Iowa uh, and and people, uh, you know, they, they like to do that sort of meet the candidate, talk to them, have actual conversations, and that really sort of starts with Carter. The other example that matters is when Obama ran, because he was he was also a relatively obscure political figure. Um, and, you know, when he, as an African-American candidate, was able to win the caucus in a very white state like Iowa, uh, you know, I think that that signaled to lots of Democrat voters in other states, hey, this person could actually be a, a viable candidate. Um and in fact, lots of black voters in places like South Carolina, which said would who had before the Iowa caucus said maybe we're not sure we can we can vote for Obama because we're not sure he can win, decided at that point after Iowa that they could win, and therefore that really sort of um, leapfrogged his campaign into to the high gear, uh, you know, because everyone thought that that Hillary Clinton was going to win that that nomination pretty pretty easily, um, and so I think you know it. it there are times historically over the past 50 years in which that kind of grassroots campaigning has worked to bring the obscure candidate into, into the limelight. Um, but I think as you're right, there's lots of people who win these, the Iowa caucuses that don't end up getting the nomination. I think, didn't Pete Buttigieg win it four years ago? Pete Buttigieg won it four years ago, I think, on the Democratic side. And, and the Democratic it's... ones got mixed up last year time because there was an, an app they had that didn't work very well and that's part of the reason why they're not doing one this year um but it also sorry that was important because that was at a time when trump and his supporters were complaining about election fraud they were already planting the seeds then and yeah. and the basically the pretty poor democratic organization of the caucuses in iowa you know fed that narrative and it never went away in that election cycle and we're still living with it and and so it contributed to it so it had a profoundly negative impact that we're still living with arguably um and then in 2016 on the GLP side it was Ted Cruz I think who won yes and he 
beat Trump by a couple of percentage points. But again, Trump claimed that there were irregularities. I mean, this is a pattern we're now familiar with. Mm. He'd actually won and called the results into question. And it's one reason why his team this time is really placing a lot of emphasis on, well, they're better organized this time, frankly, mm. uh, but by uh, apparently, uh, but really want to win and win significantly to kind of um, demonstrate their their clout, I think, and, their, and, and how well organized they are. Um, so, well, what, actually, that, that that takes us on to tomorrow, and and it depends on when people listen to this. We're terrible prognosticators, as, as longtime listeners know, especially yeah. those in the two hundred and fifty club. Um, what do you think will happen tomorrow? I mean, I think Trump's going to win. Oh, David, I, that's a bold call. I feel that's a, <laughs> I feel it's going to be very cold. Um, two two safe bets. Um, and, you know, then the question, you know, Ron DeSantis has been doing the very heavy campaign in, in Iowa um, shtick for a while now. You know, he's went to he's, all 99 he, counties, went to all 99 counties, went to the state fair, paid the, you know, met with people at all the, di- he's been to all the diners probably twice. You know, he's met with, with lots of farmers and, and met their cows and pigs and chickens and whatever. Um but has not really gotten the kind of of response that he's wanted from that kind of campaigning, or at least he hasn't been able to chip away at, at Trump's uh, overwhelming lead. So the question, you know, that often happens with Iowa is is who drops out after Iowa. Um, and what's been intriguing about this cycle, I think, is that how many people have dropped out before Iowa was even happened. Right, the you know um, the Chris Christie dropping out and, and um, various other sort of Republicans who had considered being you know who were not candidates but then decided to, to, to bow up well before Iowa. So I guess the question is, does anybody leave the race after tomorrow? And I think I think DeSantis is going to stay in. I think Nikki Haley has been doing well in recent weeks, despite her comments about the Civil War. Um, and Maybe because might- of the. And maybe because of them, entirely possible. That's really the the the, the issue that, that drives voters to the polls. Um, while, while they're driving through the blizzard tomorrow, that's why they're going to do it. Um, you know, and and she's doing polling slightly better in in New Hampshire next, which is the the first real primary. Um, and then obviously they're going to South Carolina after that, and she's from South Carolina, so. I don't know. Uh, that that that's my. I I think Trump's going to win. I think probably Nikki Haley's going to finish second and DeSantis third. And the question is, you know, how far distant the second and third are. What do you think? Uh, I think you're right. I think in those broad strokes. I mean, I think Trump. I mean, this is not a revelation. Is the prohibitive favorite. He's the prohibitive favorite to win the nomination for the Republicans. Mm. The reason to stick around, it would seem to me, for both Haley and DeSantis, although I think it's more compelling for Haley than DeSantis at the moment, is if Trump loses or doesn't get the nomination or is sorry, is not the nominee, mm. it won't be because he didn't amass enough delegates. It will be because of some um, external event, either a health, mm. major health event um, or a legal event or a combination of the two uh, where he is unable to run for whatever reason. And I think that would be the reason to stick around, even though you're losing quite significantly. Haley's having a moment that I find quite interesting. And I don't know whether this is just because the press has to tell us something and 
keep us interested. Uh, yeah, the in horse race has to continue, even if yeah, the horses um, aren't. You know, because this really is a, it's being presented as a battle for second place. And I think mm -hmm. if Haley beats DeSantis, DeSantis may not drop out, but I think DeSantis is in Iowa tomorrow. I think DeSantis is in real trouble. I think DeSantis mm -hmm. is probably done, not least because the narrative was he was the he was the guy a year ago who might actually challenge Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that, you know, that 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 has all changed. I think we're back to that point I made earlier about this is the biggest or biggest challenge you've ever undertaken. And it's a good indicator of it could be an indicator of how, how you might uh whether you would succeed as president. And I think DeSantis has been found wanting in that regard. Um, and yeah. so in that sense, the campaign has been effective in terms of revealing strengths and weaknesses. Haley is the is the current, uh, she, she won't really attack President Trump and she says she would pardon him if he's convicted. So she's, she's not anti-Trump, but she is the current favorite. And we've had endless examples in the past eight years of the sort of, the possible never Trumper, you know, the, the candidate who could be the alternative. Uh, and we've seen these people come and go and, mm -hmm. and Trump seems to, to outlast them. But Haley's having a moment. And as you say, she's campaigned much more in New Hampshire, which is next week than, 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 than DeSantis has. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if she comes second and that's presented as a victory for her, which I think it would be, because she will have defeated DeSantis. And if it's closer than the 30 points they're predicting, I mean, Trump has a huge lead, but let's suppose it's 20 points, which is still massive. But if it's 20, not 30, maybe that looks makes Haley look good. She does has a good showing in New Hampshire. I mean, if she were to beat Trump in New Hampshire, that would really be interesting. But even if a, a good, strong second in New Hampshire, and then we go to South Carolina. Now, Trump's very popular in South Carolina. Trump could finish her off in South Carolina if he really trounces her in her home state. But one can see a scenario where maybe Haley builds some momentum. I, again, Trump will be amassing delegates in all of these mm. contests and Trump is the prohibitive favorite and Trump will win. I think yeah. barring an external event will win the nomination pretty handily, but I think there's, a, there, there's an there is an incentive to stick around because you never know. And that's why I was mm. a little surprised that Chris Christie, who was the avowed anti-Trump candidate dropped out. Now maybe he didn't have any money uh, left, but um, you know, maybe he, he didn't he, want to go to Iowa in a snowstorm, right? <laughs> but you know, who knows? One, uh, I've got a couple of factoids for you, uh, which are interesting. So, the expected turnout tomorrow, well, the turnout expectations are going down because of the terrible weather forecast. But you know, the high, I think the historic high was was uh, uh, back in 2016 on the Republican side. It's like 150 thousand people. Mm -hmm. So the, the range of the number of people who will turn out is between 100 and 150,000. Out of 3 million people in Iowa, Iowa is not a large state. It's a homogenous state, as we've already said. Uh, we're talking about a, a very small number of people. As you say, only a, usually a quarter to a fifth of the Republican electorate will, will turn out in a good year. Um, yet, so we have that. It's a relatively small number of people who are involved in this process. Uh, a record amount of money has been spent this time. $125 million has been spent on advertising by the main candidates, mainly by DeSantis was the big spender uh, early on. But, you know, by the three main candidates, DeSantis, uh, Trump and Haley have spent combined $125 million on around, if it's a good night, 150,000 people.
So the real winners then are the television stations in Iowa that yes. are getting lots of advertising money uh, from out of state. Yes, although come Wednesday, that's over, you know, yeah. for at least another four years. So they're getting lots of attention now. And then nobody, because Iowa's not even a swing state anymore. So no. Iowans will not, will, 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 are going to have their moment tomorrow. I was going to say moment in the sun, but it will not be sunny. Uh, they will <laughs> have their moment tomorrow. And, and that's it. They won't matter uh, electorally again in, for at least another four years. And maybe not after that, because there is some frustration with this. Well, system. you know, the, the, the one argument in favor of of this bizarre system you know is that you know if, if let's imagine we did do a national primary you know candidates would spend a lot of time in new york and california and florida and places they would never ever go to iowa right um and you know it's flyover country it's a rural state it's you know all the kinds of, of things and so you know it in as much as, as this is a time in which a neglected segment of the American population does get attention from the political class. That's a, a potential argument in favor of, it's not a very good argument, I don't think, but I think it's a for, an, an argument for, for the the merits of, of the Iowa caucus system. Um, you know, one of the things that's interesting I think, about this year is the Democrats are trying to embrace a new system, um, trying to sort of rethink about how uh, delegates are selected, and they're coming up against, they're butting up against um, state and you know state party systems. Um, so the Democrats are not having a caucus tomorrow, um, in part because of things that happened four years ago, in part because it's not a competitive race anyway. In a little bit over a week, there's going to be the first primary uh, in New Hampshire, uh, which will be, as we said, an interesting one for Nikki Haley and Trump and, and what have you. There's going to be a Democratic primary that day, but Joe Biden's not going to be on the ballot. Because the Democratic Party nationally has said, actually, the first contest we want is in South Carolina. And New Hampshire has said, state law says we are required to go first. And so we're going first, and even if were not considered actually legitimate by the political party. So it's going to be very strange how the you know the, the parties nationally are wrestling with how to pick their candidates uh, and, and how state parties very much want to sort of preserve a particular order that's beneficial to them. Because obviously this whole system works very well if you are the state party leader in New Hampshire or Iowa, you are all of a sudden a very important person. Um, if you change yeah, and if you own a TV way. station or a diner in either of those states, you <laughs> exactly <laughs> you value of um, diners in Iowa decreases precipitously. Um, I, mean, I, I, I disagree with you about having a national primary. I think that would exclude a lot more people. I, I, I think that would be, uh, I think that would throw up a different set of challenges. Um, mm. But I could see a truncated, pro, a kind of condensed primary schedule, maybe from March to June. Yeah. And I would get. I, I think caucuses are, you know, uh, for the reasons you said, are undemocratic. So I've, uh, I've got a better idea. So you tell me this is this is probably dumb, but have a, a primary system, all 50, 51, however you want to do it. Assign them randomly every 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 four years. That's not crazy, actually. Um, you know, so have 
ping pong balls like they do with the lottery and say, right, this year it's going to be Nebraska. Next year it'll be, you know, if they had Alaska as the first one, that would be cool. Oh, it could be weird. Um, but yeah, like, that's, that's not be arbitrary uh, as opposed to arbitrary and, and distorting the way it is now. Well, and that goes to uh, another thought I had. This is truly outside the box. I mean, um, entertainment is dominated. Television around the world is dominated by reality. And I'm using reality in, with <laughs> scare quotes here. Reality TV programs that are all sort of contests about reducing a certain number of people down to whoever the <laughs> winner is going to be. So the political party that comes up with the the reality TV program to produce their nominee, I think that could be quite successful. I, that well, would be a bold a... move. But that, yeah. you know, they do it for the Bachelor and Traders and all these things. My kids watch that. I don't understand. I, I walk mm. through the room and grumble like a, you know, an old man um you know, but, but, but i i would think something like that would be um, uh i think we're already there frank i think we just don't realize it yet i think that's already what we've got um yeah, well and that would be it would be every week then you have it condensed over over mm -hmm. you know call it the candidate and exactly okay <laughs> Jesus. uh yes well so we will see what happens tomorrow but it's it's a very bizarre system and i'm not sure it's a, a healthy one and i hope uh, people who are traveling to caucuses tomorrow, if you're listening to this on the way, drive safely. Um, oh, if you're a listener and you go to the Iowa caucus, get in touch with us. Yes, I'd, please be, do. I, I'd love to know if we have any listeners well, who are caucusing. You know, so one of the interesting things about that that's happening in, in this Iowa caucus and it happens in every Iowa caucus, you have to be a member of the party to caucus, but you can change your party affiliation the same day. That's where it's very different from from the UK, where you know you've got to be a paid up party member in order to to vote in the in the leadership election. Well, so I mean, this is one of these cases where each of these primaries and caucuses has different rules, right? And so in, in Iowa, you have to be a member of the party to do it, but you can change your party the same day. So theoretically, you could be a Democrat today, and then tomorrow morning change your you know things your registration to Republican, show up at the caucus, and then vote for Mickey Mouse uh, or whoever it is you want to be the, the nominee um, uh, just to, to mess with things. You know, in 10 days, whatever it is, whenever New Hampshire happens, Democrats have to vote for Democrats, Republicans have to vote for the Republican primary, but independents can choose and vote in either one. You know, and so each of these states has weird arcane rules. And so so it's it's, it's a very strange, you know, uh, hodgepodge of different uh, kinds of elections that are happening to, to end up with a, with a nominee. Which which is great if you're interested in, in arcane politics, but not necessarily um, <laughs> means the system actually works very well. Oh, but it's like these reality programs where there's a different challenge every week, Dave. <laughs> different so challenge. Totally missing the point. You're missing missing the New Hampshire challenge where you get to switch. Okay, that's good. Um, right. Okay, we will see. And listeners, if we're wrong about all the things you watch. Uh, time for last drops, Frank. What'd you got? Wouldn't it be amazing if we're actually wrong and Trump doesn't win tomorrow? That would be something. But <laughs> yeah, weirder things have have. Maybe not. Um, no, not about. many weirder things. Anyway, let's drop. Let's let's go ahead. I have two. I have two. One is, as as many listeners will know, the United States and its allies, particularly Britain, 
bombed the Houthi militia, have been bombing the Houthi militia in, in Yemen as part of the wider conflict or the widening conflict in the Middle East. Uh, as a consequence of that, there's been some commentary um, on social and more traditional media about Thomas Jefferson and the Barbary Pirates. This comes up every time. Uh, this comes up with some frequency. Um, the criticism of President Biden has been that he did not congression get congressional authorization for this military action. We've talked about the War Powers Act and things mm -hmm. like that. Sure, we don't have to belabor this now. Uh, some people defending uh, Biden have pointed out that um, Jefferson in 1801, pres then President Jefferson in 1801, sent the a uh, pretty significant portion of what was then a very small United States Navy to the Mediterranean in 1801 without congressional approval because Congress was hmm. not sitting um, in, in the spring of 1801. Um, and, and this has been used as a kind of defense of, of President Biden's action. I'm not commenting on, on Biden's action. Point of clarification is quite important. Jefferson called his cabinet together and there, his first cabinet meeting was about this very issue. And they spent a long time discussing it. And it's a very interesting cabinet meeting because they discussed one of the thing, matters that was discussed was whether congressional authorization was needed. And hmm. the, the sense of the cabinet meeting and Jefferson's decision was, well, no, Tripoli has declared war on the United States, which it had. Um, mm. Now, Tripoli declared war as a means of opening negotiations with the United States, uh, but that's we don't have to get bogged down in that detail. Um, and um, therefore, war has been declared on the United States. Therefore, a congressional declaration of war is unnecessary because a state of war exists. So applying that logic, one could argue that given that the Houthi were, have been firing missiles at shipping in the, in the, in the Red Sea from at countries aligned with the United States, there, there is a logic there, but but the the point being, Jefferson actually did consider this question of congressional approval and did he didn't just sort of act as is frequently presented in in the um, in contemporary media accounts. He did not act without authorization. He did consult his cabinet on this and discuss these very issues. So I think that's what's what's interesting. Sorry, now, go ahead, now, David. If, if if a listener wants to learn more about this and to read something or maybe find something to give to their friends and loved ones so they understand the context. What, do you have a book you might recommend? That, that well, might there's be? a book by a guy at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I wrote, there's a chapter in this. Uh, sorry, thank you for teeing me up, David, but now I feel like a jerk. Yeah, I read my last book, <laughs> Emperor of Liberty. I, I wrote, There's a chapter about this. Uh, so, so it came to mind. Uh, but, but thank you, thank you, David. So, my okay. second one though is I watched. As you know, I'm in the United States at the moment. I'm not a huge fan of the NFL, but it's kind of unavoidable when you're here. Mm. And the it's Wild Card Weekend or whatever they're calling it now. It's the opening of the NFL playoffs, and the um, Kansas City Chiefs played the Miami Dolphins last night. And Taylor Swift was there, as she has been throughout the season because she is in a relationship with somebody who plays for Kansas City, Travis Kelsey, who's a who's a tight end for Kansas City. And she was very prominently um, uh, shown on the television broadcast and in the stadium. It was very, very cold. I think it was minus seven um, Fahrenheit, but with the wing chill, it was minus 20. Um, so it oh, was geez. the fourth coldest game in NFL history. It was very cold. Um, 
And this led me to reflect while I was uh, working out this morning about celebrity couples in history. Um, and and I, I've come up and I'm so I, I have not discussed this with you, David, uh, and I'll throw it out to both you and the listeners. And I have particular criteria here that I'm applying. So yeah. I don't think the celebrities can be in the same business. So I don't I don't think two movie stars getting together or two musicians getting together counts. Okay. OK, so I want people who are celebrities in their own fields. And I don't know, there should be a metric to come up with a way of measuring this. So at the moment, you know, Taylor Swift must be the biggest pop star in the world. I think that's a safe statement. I think that's a safe statement. Right. Yes, or at least in the top three. Yes. Yeah. And Travis tells I mean, we've heard that, you know, She's changed the global, her recent tour, her current tour has kind of changed the global GDP and things like this. So, yeah. so she, she's a big deal at the moment um, and beloved by millions or billions. Um, Travis Kelsey is plays in the NFL, so he's not necessarily a global figure, but he's he's at the top of his game for arguably the teams, one of the top teams in the league, you know, in the recent past. And he's one of the top players. He's within the United States, certainly he's a big deal. So yeah. I think they are both at the top of their professions. She's far more famous than he is, but he's not unknown. And so as a couple, I'm trying to think, okay, who's comparable in history? So I've come up with a couple of, of examples. And again, this the crucial thing that they can't be in the same business. Okay. So I think in the more recent past, we have Alex Rodriguez and Jennifer Lopez. Okay. And again, there, there are a lot of similarities there, I think, between mm. in that she's the bigger star, she's an actress and singer, and he was an athlete, again, in an, in an American-focused sport, baseball, but was the biggest star in baseball, had the biggest contract in baseball history at mm. one point. Um, and I, so I think, I think that they're uh, a candidate. I think going back, you have Joe DiMaggio and Marilyn Monroe. Yes. Um, the difference there was when they got together and when they got married, they were briefly married for nine months in 1954. Um, DiMaggio was retired. And so his fame, he was still famous. I mean, he was, he was probably the most famous baseball player in America at the height of his, um, career at a time when baseball was as popular as the NFL is now. So I think he was, you know, he, he was a big deal. Uh, and she, of course, was huge. I mean, there's a story told probably apocryphal about her coming back from the from Korea, visiting the troops in Korea and saying, mm. oh, Joe, they cheered and cheered and cheered. You can't imagine what it was like. And he said, yes, I can. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but then I think the. And this is good for our British listeners. The really good comparison. Is David Beckham, David and Victoria Beckham. Because like you know, she was, you know, the Spice Girls weren't it. The Spice Girls were huge, mm -hmm. and he yes. was, you know, he was. And interestingly, they've maintained their fame after they've retired from their their uh, their relative uh, the things that made them famous. So I think they might be the most famous celebrity couple that I can think of, at least in the Anglophone world. I could be wrong. So so I'm I want to ponder this, and I throw it open to the listeners. My favorite is probably Mia Hamm. And Nomar Garciaparra, but that's because Nomar played for the Red Sox. Because uh, when they got together, and she was the star of the women's world, U.S. Women's World Cup winning team in the late '90s, when they got together. But they—that's not the same level of fame. So there you go. 
I'm going to have to think more about this. But uh, I mean, it probably warrants an entire episode or an entire series within our podcast. I mean, I think it's predicated upon first a heteronormative conception of of relationship. Well, not necessarily. Okay. Um, No, no, no. I disagree with that. I knew you were going to hit me with that because you're you always you know I I I disagree with that. Okay. Okay. and, and you know the idea of what a celebrity is, I think, is is, is a, of course, yeah, shaped by by time and anyway. But maybe I'll have to think about that more. I'm gonna have to think about more that uh, more in the days and weeks to come. What's your last drop? You're gonna have something academic, probably, right? <laughs> of course, I'm gonna have something academic. I'm down um, with the people, David. I'm a Swifty. <laughs> I'm yeah. I'm not going to ask you to name any Taylor Swift songs <laughs> uh, or to sing them because anyway. Uh, so I want to recommend an article from the uh, Journal of American History from the December uh, issue uh, by Rachel Sheldon and Eric Alexander called "Dismantling the Party System: Party Fluidity and the Mechanics of 19th Century U.S. Politics." And the premise of this this article, uh, which seems germane to our discussion today, is that. Um, our understanding of, of American political parties in the 19th century is um, much too rigid that we import from the 20th century these ideas about, about how parties are structured and how parties work, and that that 19th century parties were much more fluid and dynamic, and membership was uh, much more fluid and dynamic than, than we previously considered. Um, you know, the people switched parties all the time, and the parties didn't have the kind of institutional power uh, that they, they would later take on in the, in the 20th century. Um, it's an important article, but I think also in terms of our current political moment, worth worth reading and thinking about the powers the parties have and, and how parties work. So Good. I want Excellent. to recommend that, which is less fun than Taylor Swift, maybe, but uh, fun for a different crowd of people. You know, don't, don't like watching American football, then you can read the Journal of American History. Right. Uh, Until next week, Frank. Cheers. Cheers, David. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.